Thanks for pressing play. For some, entrepreneurship is a way up in the world. And for others, it's a way out. But no matter what the motivation, entrepreneurship is ultimately an opportunity to create a different future for the entrepreneur, her or his customers, employees, and ultimately an entire community. And that's why, uh, or at least one of the main reasons why I love entrepreneurship so, so much and entrepreneurs. And on this episode, one of my favorite entrepreneurs, Iron Mike Stedman, is here. Iron Mike is um, he's a retired combat marine officer, a three-time national collegiate boxing champion in the military, and he's the founder of Ironbound Boxing and Education, which is a nonprofit in New Jersey, and a for-profit company called Dog Whistle Branding, who is a marketing agency helping veteran-owned businesses with podcasting, brand, and category design. Recently, the Hoover Institute at Stanford asked Iron Mike to become what they call a veteran fellow, where he is working with them and other entrepreneurs on a multi-year project centered on producing a breakthrough in veteran entrepreneurship. Now, um, even if you're not an entrepreneur, this is a conversation you're going to find incredibly uh, inspiring and empowering. And I also want to say off the top, uh, a huge shout out to... um, Uh, any and all veteran entrepreneurs who are tuning in. Also want to let you know that uh, we taped this conversation outside in our garden. And so uh, you're probably going to hear some chickens or some birds or some kitty cats or various other uh, outdoor sounds. And uh, when that happens, you haven't gone crazy. Um, We're sitting in the garden and you just happen to be sitting there with us. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine says we are, quote, the best business podcast. And there are many reviewers who call us things like overrated and sophomoric. Whatever you say, we are the real dialogue podcast for business leaders with a different mind. Our friends at Malibu Milk are the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. Malibu Milk is the small, tasty change that makes a very big difference. Go to Malibu Milk with a Y.com today and on checkout, type in different 15 for your uh, 15% discount. That's different 15 at Malibu Milk with a Y.com. And also want to let you know um, we have recently released two new, what we call big books uh, from Category uh, Pirates on, you guessed it, Category Design. And uh, thanks to your help, both became number one Amazon bestsellers on day one they were available. And if you want to gift these books for uh, to someone, the entrepreneur and uh, marketer in your world, it's uh, the Category Design Toolkit and a Marketer's Guide to Category Design on Amazon.com. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Iron Mike Stedman. What's going on? Can you hear me all right? <laughs> I can hear you great. You do sound, uh, I love your voice, man. Appreciate it. I think it's the podcast and people say I sound like a podcaster now. You do. You totally do. And you got one of those voices where uh, I could listen to you read Wikipedia and I'd be stoked. Yeah. It, it's funny how that works when you start, you get better at public speaking. You know, just like me and you were talking about, I think sometimes if you only look at things from like a, 
a, a monetary perspective in terms of ROI, you're missing out, you know? And for me, podcasting has taught me how to publicly speak. People are like, oh, you're so well-spoken, you know? Or when I do interviews now, even like video interviews, I can, they're surprised I can do one take all the way through. So. And I'll tell you, the, the ability to public speak is one of the most underrated skills. I think it's the ability to communicate well. in, in generally, <laughs> yeah. whether that's a combination of reading, writing, you know, um, speaking, right? This, how, how do we like communicate with each other in a clear and articulate way? And I think especially now, when that stuff is so noisy with like the internet and everything else, you know, people selling you all day, 24 seven. I think it is a superpower because it articulates your, uh, value. If you can communicate clearly. And, uh, where do you think you, where do you think we are in terms of our ability to communicate, you know, particularly here in the, uh, excited States? So I think we're struggling with it. We've lost the ability to, cause we don't communicate with empathy. That's the thing. Right. There's you can communicate and you can you can share your opinion or something. But like, I don't know. You can also be an asshole about it. Right. And I don't think we we're very empathetic anymore. Seems to be a lot of yelling going on. Didn't I always say, like, if you're the loudest person in the room, you're also the weakest person in the room. And sometimes I think yelling is a. It's I don't want to call it a cop out. Right. But yelling is. We just, you're right. We don't know how to communicate. We don't know how to respect people's opinion. I find it highly ironic that quote unquote social media has made a lot of us antisocial. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a lot easier for people to hide behind the com computer screen, you know, or on their phones or whatever. And, you know, me and you entrepreneurs, right. And I've been saying business is a contact sport. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the generation now, when they start a business, you know, they think they can just go on social media and uh, post and tweet and do all this other stuff. But man, human to human, you still got to be able to look someone in the eye, talk to them, convey your value. And I think, uh, you know, we're just the default is social media, which is like even dating girls. The default is an app, you know, so we've lost. I think we have lost the ability to communicate, actually. And I think one of the coolest things, you know, of course, you and I share a tremendous love of podcasting. One of the coolest things is mobile computing, uh, social media have damaged our ability to connect and podcasting. So the same technology yeah. is now bringing back authentic dialogue, real conversations. So it's sort of interesting how... Uh, it can be the uh, the disease and the cure at the same time. So I'm gonna do. I'm gonna tell you something's gonna blow your mind, right? 1860, right? What you have in 1860, contested election, to contested election, the America super polarizing, right? And one of the things I think that is a blessing and a curse now is social media, because could you imagine 1860 if you heard that they stole the election, right? That didn't travel quick. You know, especially if you're out in Podunk, uh, Georgia, right? And you find out three weeks later and during all this time, you're imagining what's going on in your head. Or imagine that you're, you know, you're out uh, in the woods and you hear that they stormed the Capitol. To arms, to arms, you know? But now because of social media, you know, the information spreads quick. So people are getting news in like real time. But I could only imagine, you know, 
what people would be thinking or how America would react if a lot of the stuff that took place with the pandemic, with the George Floyd, with all this stuff, and all you heard this was rumors or whispers or it's carried by mail or you see it in the newspaper, you know? So I think this is one of those instances where, you know, it really is like a blessing and a curse for us. And some of us are working very hard to make it more of a blessing than a curse. That's right. And, uh, and so you're in the podcast creation business now. I am, um, stump, I don't want to call it stumbled upon it by accident, but, uh, you know, I was in the Marines, I was infantry officer in the Marines and, uh, I just felt, especially me as a veteran, right. Um, anytime something happens regarding racial issues in this country or regarding veteran issues in this country, I just felt like my perspective wasn't being shared. Uh, particularly as like a black man living in the inner city. And I come up with this idea to start a book called Confessions of a Native Son to kind of just share my personal opinions on different topics that matter to me, education, uh, racism, all this different stuff. Um, and in my procrastination, I stumbled upon podcasting and I decided, oh, I'll do a podcast first to help me think through my thoughts and then I'll turn it into a book. And that led me down a rabbit hole of starting my own podcast business. And what's that like for you now? Humbling, you know, <laughs> I joke, like, I think I'm like the, I think one of my core values for, for my company, Ironbound Media is that we believe audio is the future of publishing. And part of me thinks like if Peter Drucker was alive today, would he write 30 books or would he produce 30 different podcasts? You know, uh, obviously Seth Godin, another one that's written tons of books and has established himself as this prolific marketing, prolific marketer. But, you know, for me, I'm kind of looking towards the future. And uh, my friends had always told me I had to gift the gab, you know, but I think it's a golden opportunity with podcasting. You ever hear that expression? You kiss the Blarney Stone? I have not. Yeah. That's what my grandmother used to say to me. It means it means the same thing that uh, you're a talker. And uh, some of us really are talkers and some of us think out loud. And of course, the incredible thing about a dialogue where we sit down like this is, we're passing the puck back and forth. Yeah. Right. We had um, Chelsea Headley, I think is her name. We had her on and she was saying um, a real conversation is like a game of, of um, catch where you and I are tossing a ball back and forth. And we purposely are trying to help the other person right. catch that ball. And then also processing and thinking through it. Right. So when you have a conversation, right. Like it's less aggressive. And like one of the things I even had to, you know, people are talking about on podcasting is give people time to think. This is like the only second in-person podcast I've probably done in like two years. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I love the um, the internet podcast. It's incredible because you can talk to somebody any, anywhere in the world, but it's nothing better than sitting down face-to-face, -face yeah. even if you're using video or, you know, we use Squadcast but, or Zoom or whatever, but um, nothing better than a couple of people sitting down in life. Zuckerberg wants us to podcast in the metaverse. Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't know that I want Zuckerberg running the metaverse, but yeah. I, I get where we're going. But um, the interesting thing about that stuff is as more and more of our lives become digital. Right. And uh, the native, there are more native digitals in America now than there are native analogs. The value of the RL, <laughs> yeah. real life, increases, right? Yeah. And I mean, we're sitting outside. It's a, I mean, it is a fucking beautiful day in Santa Cruz today. Yeah. 
you know, and that ocean air is going and we got the kitty cat and the hens and shit. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful out here. I mean, that you guys tuning in, it's really nice out in California. <laughs> I was telling Chris, I was like, I think this is why people out here live so long. <laughs> well, yeah, you were saying that people live here, that live longer out here than they seem to back in New yeah, Jersey. Yeah, freaking 99, 100 years old, still talking, still writing. I'm like, oh my God. So uh, you had a pretty big week with some pretty amazing people this week, right? I did. I spent the week at uh, the Hoover Institute at uh, Stanford University. I was uh, one of 10 veterans selected all across the country to become Hoover Veteran Fellows and work on projects meant to bring progress and healing, you know, to America, to the country. So focused on internal solutions to uh, internal problems. And so, so the Hoover Institute, you know, obviously incredibly famous, yeah. uh, been around for a long time. Tell me about this initiative and, and, and why they picked you. So the first thing I want to say is I had no idea what the Hoover Institute was, right? I'm, uh, I like to consider myself pretty well read. You know, I got my undergrad in history from the United States Naval Academy, my master's in American studies from Rutgers. Um, so, you know, I've always read Baldwin and Wright and, you know, I'm, I get down the YouTube rabbit hole looking at, you know, firing line and all this other stuff. And I came across Thomas Sowell, start looking at his stuff on YouTube and always would see Hoover Institute. Right. And then, uh, you know, I had an email forwarded to me by someone in my network that Hoover was starting this program uh, to bring fellows uh, from the veteran community to work on uh, projects. And to be honest, I saw it come by and I forwarded to somebody I knew. Um, and he told me, uh, pass, Mike, they're pretty far right wing, you know, kind of organization. And so I was like, oh, I'll pass on it. But my buddies, uh, I had a friend that works at Hoover. And uh, when I found out she worked at Hoover, I mentioned that, oh, uh, you know, I had an opportunity to apply to this program, but I passed because I was like, Hoover's too. You know, I heard it was kind of far right wing, whatever. She's like, no, Mike, you have to apply. You absolutely have to apply. So I ended up applying and got selected. And uh, it was absolutely amazing, if I'm being honest, right? Like, I didn't know what to expect, right? I was just watching the YouTube videos and reading online and found out that Connalisa Rice was the director of the Hoover Institute. And I know we've had a lot of military uh, fellows there in the past working on national security issues. But essentially, uh, you know, Hoover is most known for, you know, national, like global policy, foreign policy, et cetera. And uh, Dr. Rice took over as the director and she's really focused on America as well, like looking internally at the state and local level. And uh, one of the things that they realized was that, you know, one of our competitive advantage in the social sector is we have veterans that are spread out all across the country and communities from Newark, New Jersey, you know, all the way to Santa Cruz, California. And one of the nice things about veterans is especially now like our world is kind of very polarizing we're not having these conversations but in the military is like one of the only places where you have like a black guy from jersey a filipino a texan you know uh, uh and all these people like together in this melting pot and they're walking down the street one's got cowboy boots on one's got a fitted head on that says new york but in the military it naturally brings us together it forces us to come together a lot of America is not like that. And so, uh, and my understanding is that like that is a competitive advantage and Hoover is trying to expand their footprint outside of just, you know, the Bay area and DC and New York and say, how can we promote a free society? How can we promote free enterprise? How can we pro promote the American dream and the promises that we've made as a country out 
in the community. And I think that they realize that veterans have the ability to go out and really bring prolific projects to life to uh, remind us what it is to be American. Fucking unbelievable. And I, I think one of our problems in government is the, um, the really sick, uh, sickening low level of veterans that are elected at the federal level. Yeah. Right. It's, it's weird. There are just not very many veterans in Congress. Yeah. It's been a long time since we had somebody who served in the military as president or even vice president. And so it's interesting that Hoover specifically wanted to reach out to guys like you and to have a conversation about how we change things in America. Yeah. We bring agency. You know, that's what H.R. McMaster told us, you know, because to be quite frank, right, it's a little intimidating. You know, these are some of the most prolific minds in the world. You know, people come to Stanford to meet with the Hoover Institute to hear their opinions on China, on the uh, international relations, on these big, you know, the tax policies, all this other stuff. And so for me, I'm like, you know, how am I going to be received? How am I going to be, you know, accepted? Like, I don't. I don't really consider myself a scholar. Maybe I'm a Renaissance man, right? A box, do a little podcast and do a little writing, all this other stuff. But to be associated and be in pictures with all these prolific people, but man, they were so warm and welcoming. And they admitted that at like the academic level, right? Yeah, we sit in our ivory, t ivory towers at times. We're really good at the research and the, uh, you know, academic aspects of it. But you guys are the one out in the community. You know, it's one thing to, to, to put policy together on places like Newark and Detroit and Baltimore. It's another thing to live downtown in these places and walk the beat. And so the respect that we have as experts in our fields and to have ourselves appreciated for that was nothing that I would have ever imagined. You know, I mean, you're having this conversation. I always thought Stanford was for other people. Hoover Institute was for other people. But I never would have imagined that it was actually for me. And they did a great job on making me feel welcomed. And so what's it like as you're talking to H.R. McMaster about, about some of the biggest challenges and problems in our country and, and what we can do about that? Well, first of all, he, uh, he was absolutely amazing. You know, he called me Iron Mike. His, his wife called me Iron Mike, told me she loved my name. You know, it's uh, in the military, we have this thing called uh, actuals talk to actuals, right? If I'm a captain and I'm in the command of troops and you're a lance corporal, you're private, but you're in command of your troop, even if it's two to three people, we talk to each other, right? We don't go between this in-between stuff. It's like, hey, actuals talk to actuals. And again, I think this is another thing with the veteran community that's unique is that, you know, at the end of the day, right, yes, he's a general, you know, retired general, but he respects, you know, he respects me. And there's that level of just, I don't know, man, just mutual respect for who we are and where we're at. And so it was super humbling, you know. I'm glad they invited you. And uh, at the risk of sounding too corny, you are the future of our country. I mean, you represent, in my opinion, everything that's great about the United States. I mean, we have a voluntary military. You chose to do that. You chose to go and put your life on the line for our lives. You did that. And now you're an entrepreneur and you're doing it again. And you happen to be a fucking boxing champion. <laughs> yeah. And you're not even 35 years old, are you? I'm not. I mean, holy fuck, Mike, you are on fire. So I, maybe tell me about 
you know, you get out of the military and you had this, you began to cultivate this entrepreneurial dream. What was it about entrepreneurship after being a Marine, uh, you know, serving in combat and then being a multi-time uh, Navy box? I mean, I can't imagine knocking out Navy SEALs and Army Rangers yeah. and shit in the ring. So like after all that, what, what light bulb goes off in your head and you say, you know what? I want to get into entrepreneurship. I was actually the accidental entrepreneur. I had no aspirations of really being an entrepreneur. All I wanted to do was fund a free boxing gym for youth and young adults in the inner city. Um, and you really got to take it back. You know, I grew up in uh, College Station, Texas. Uh, was raised by my mom, Malene Stedman. So I grew up in a single parent home. Um, never met my father till this day at 34, but had an opportunity to uh, pursue uh, the Naval Academy. Didn't have the grades to go right away. And I mean, you talked about this. I had to take the SAT six times, went to a prep school for a year. You took it. I never even took it. I never yes, got right. out of high school. So you got me on that. Um, but ended up going to prep school for a year at Newport, Rhode Island, and then uh, got to Annapolis. And uh, while I was at Navy, I got introduced to boxing, fell in love with it, uh, found out I was pretty good at it, ended up winning three national championships and two most valuable boxer awards. But one of the things I tell people is, uh, you know, I didn't win three national championships boxing a bunch of midshipmen out of Annapolis. Midshipmen can be kind of nerdy, right? We're pretty, you know, for, they're pretty smart, right? But, you know, for the most part, right, I, I spent a lot of time in inner city boxing gyms in Baltimore, Detroit, you know, Brooklyn, the Bronx. Um, and I always took pride in that at the Naval Academy. Where all the pussies hang out, right? Yeah, pretty much, right. Um, and it was my boxing coach, man. My boxing coach would take us to these gyms in the inner city, and you would walk in there, and you're looking like, I'm like the doghouse. You know, they're looking at us like fresh meat. But I always took pride of being a man of color and going in these places, repping that Navy boxing. And to be quite frank, there weren't that many people that looked like me at the Naval Academy. So there were more people that looked like me inside these inner city boxing gyms. And I would talk to the kids in there and uh, they felt like a lot of their option was either to turn pro or go to the streets. That was the only option that they had with boxing. But for my teammates and I at Navy, yeah, we boxed. But at the end of the day, we're going to graduate from a world class institution have our degrees, go serve our country as officers in the military, and then leave the military and work in corporate America, start businesses, go to graduate school, et cetera. So it always bothered me that a lot of young men and these women and a lot of young men and women inside these inner city amateur boxing gyms didn't have that same opportunity. So I planted that seed in the back of my head. And uh, when I was transitioning out of the military in 2015, and it's, you know, me and you were talking about transitions, right? For a lot of military officers, especially service academy grads, there's this path, right? Which is you get out, you go to business school, you go to an elite business school, right? And then you go work in corporate America for Bain or McKinsey or something, right? That's where we go. But when I was getting out, that, that wasn't my heart, you know? I'd always wanted to really, you know, lift as I climb, right? Like, being a black officer in the Marines, you know, it felt like a lot of times, like if a tree falls in the woods and nobody hears it, doesn't make a sound. You know, when you're at a place like Annapolis or when you're a Marine officer, people assume you're already successful. You, you've made it, right? But it's like, how can my community see me? You know, you, I'm not around, you know, people that look like me. I'm not around young men to show them what's possible. And so uh, I had that voice in the back of my head of like, Mike, you've done everything you're supposed to do in life at this point. You went to a world-class institution. You served your country, right? You have earned the right to go follow your passion. 
but I'm still, part of me is like, you're a Naval Academy graduate. You know, we go to business school, we go do this, right? So when I got out, got a buddy of mine, Philip Jones, my best friend. And he's like, you know, he caught me one day at my desk. And I had always had this vision of moving to the inner city, starting a free boxing gym for the community, very similar to the Navy boxing program. But at the same time, I'm applying to graduate schools. And my buddy catches me at the desk. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, you got to make a decision. He's like, you got to choose to burn the ships at some point. And so I did it. I burned the ships on graduate school, moved to Newark. and. Uh, decided to coach boxing and then after about a year and a half i approached the city of newark and uh, asked them if there was a space somewhere in the city i could outfit into a, a boxing gym uh, they gave me the thumbs up took me to a, ba a space in the back of a leaky recreation center and said will this work and that was how i became an entrepreneur so i know that's a long-winded answer but and it's interesting you started off uh, as an entrepreneur your first entrepreneurial endeavor is a nonprofit. yeah it was a gym, really. Yeah. I didn't even know what it I assumed it was going to be a nonprofit. It really was a problem. Okay, I have this gym. I have this space. I have to put my money where my mouth is. And it was one of those now what moment. You know, like, oh, you talk a big, now what? And it's like, okay, how do I fund this gym? How do I build this gym? And that's what made me an entrepreneur. And I would have never imagined in a million years that boxing would get me to Stanford. Twice. Well, it sounds like they want you to come back a bunch of times too on this this project for Hoover, right? Yeah, they're uh, they're really uh, they're really committed to seeing us succeed, and they want us to take a swing at it, you know. And uh, the project I'm working on is, uh, you know, we launched what became the Ironbound Boxing Academy in uh, 27. I started working on October 2016, launched it in February of 2017, and uh, uh, it's a free boxing gym in Newark. Uh, that provides uh, free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. And the reason we do the entrepreneurship and the employment opportunities is at a certain point, that 13, 14-year-old you're working with, you know, that young man, now all of a sudden he's 18, 19, you know, and what do you think they're asking about? You know, hey, coach, you got a job, you know, I need some money and all this other stuff. So we realize we need to have like a kind of holistic program. Um, and our core purpose is to build champions in and out of the ring. And so, you know, and I got to give credit to Chris for this. Uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, our gym was shut down. So there's a lot of uncertainty. Once they canceled the NBA, I was like, it was a wrap. But at the end of the day, a gym is a nice to have, not a necessity. So even with social distancing, we were able to organize workouts at the park, keep our core group together. Um, but then there was this opportunity that came up where uh, I started looking at how can we build out another facility in Newark and how can we do a facility where we can expand upon our box and our entrepreneurship? So think of it as like the 21st century boys and girls club, right? Imagine a space where inner city youth can hang out. It's got a badass boxing gyms. It's got a co-working space. Maybe it's got a podcast studio, some turntables, right? So think of it as like a futuristic kind of a place you want to hang out on a Friday night. Right. Um, and I, came up with this idea for what became the Ironbound Courage Academy. And I contacted you, Chris, about it because I said, hey, um, there's a space in Newark that we have the potential to outfit through my organization, Ironbound Boxing. And I don't have a clear connection between the boxing and the entrepreneurship. That's not a clear kind of pattern recognition for a lot of people. And me and you did the category design process and we started talking about courage. And I was like, you know, the same courage it takes to step inside a boxing ring it's the same courage it takes to start a business. And trust me, I know. 
right? I've experienced both. And I start saying that to people and they're like, absolutely. You know, and so we came with this idea for the Ironbound Courage Academy, which is a 5,000 square foot facility in the heart of downtown Newark, where a lot of our kids don't have agency currently, you know, because of, uh, you know, progression, gentrification, whatever you want to call it. Right. There's certain spaces that are getting built up where the people that live in the community don't have agency yet. And what we want to do is we want to bring agency to this space by creating a world class facility for the kids in the community that say, hey, this is our cities, too. This is our space. And the idea is to, you know, create a world-class uh, facility for the youth and young adults in Newark. I fucking love you, Mike. <laughs> now, if, and if this is too personal, feel free to give me a little whack. But, you know, I know, obviously, we've gotten to know each other. And I know a huge part of the motivation here, obviously, I mean, it's very clear, is to make a difference for youth. And to show them there are other things that are possible in life, particularly for those of us who grow up in environments where there doesn't seem to be a lot of possibility. And so I'm curious how much the fact that you never met your dad and you grew up without a, a male role model that way um, has influenced what you're doing now. I think it's a big part of it, you know? So one of the things I didn't talk about was when I was at the Naval Academy my sophomore year, one of the reasons that I was so good at boxing was my sophomore year, my mom had a stroke and I got sent home from the academy to be with her. And she was in the ICU in a coma and we didn't know if she was going to make it. And uh, I had to make the decision of taking a semester off and staying there to work through that or uh, going back to Annapolis. Right. And, you know, one of the things was, you know, that's a whole story in itself of everything it took for me to go to the academy. I literally had African-American male figures in the military tell me that I should there's no way I'm going to Annapolis. Look me in the eye just like you with my mom sitting right here and saying, you're not going to get into the Naval Academy with your grades. It's just not happening. You're just not good enough. Yeah. And so took the SAT six times. My mom got me a tutor to help study for it. Guy named Eric Jeffries. Right. And on Saturday mornings, I'm in there because I sucked at math. I was terrible at math. And we just had to pound pavement. I'm talking about four, five hour tutoring sessions. Right. And so I had this whole journey getting rejected, you know, because I did apply. I didn't get in. Right. And then I found out basically at the 11 hour that they were offering me to prep school. So if I could go to the prep school for a year in Newport, Rhode Island, earn the grades, I would automatically get a appointment to Annapolis. Right. So I had this whole just journey. Right. To get to Annapolis. And remind me how old you would have been at that time. 18. Yeah. And so driven like crazy at 18 to, to make it. Yeah. And it, the story was just to get to Annapolis, you know, this was for other people, right? The idea that like somebody like me could go to a place like this. And that's officer training, right? It's officer training. Yeah. It's a free education. You have to serve your country for five years afterwards. But, you know, I mean, we've had presidents go to the Naval Academy, right? It's very prestigious. And the same thing about West Point and, and uh, Air Force Academy, and all these different service academies. So uh, this is no joke. Right. And uh, so, you know, you finally get there and you make it blood, sweat and tears. Right. And then your mom has a stroke. You know, and it was. Uh, it's just one of those things of like. I 
I think that's why I get. I think that's why I get emotional talking about this. Talk about the Stanford thing. It's okay, Mike. Uh, I think every parent in, in the country, they just kind of want the best for their their kids, you know. And for me, it felt like the time and the hard work and, you know, the benefit of all the kind of struggles. Cause I don't want to call us the working poor, but it's just that sense of like, you know, people that work really, really hard and are working 24 seven, you know, without a lot of support, you know, you dream of getting, getting your kid. And I gotta be honest, right. I'm self-aware. I'm a young black man, you know, I'm not young anymore. I'm like 34, from where I sit, you're young. <laughs> yeah. But it would make it would make me feel before even she had a stroke, right? You know, sometimes she would come she would love to come to Annapolis, you know? And it was kinda like making me feel a little uncomfortable. Cause they just want to watch, you know? Just kind of watch you in your uh just element, you know, that kind of that kind of pride, you know? And it just it would always kind of make me feel uncomfortable. But for her to kind of go through all of that, raising me and my sister on her own, you know, and then for me to you get there, and it was like, I felt like I had to go through part of the journey on my own. And it was like, uh, you always thought certain people were going to kind of be there with you. And so when she, when she had that stroke, I felt like she wasn't, she wasn't there. She oh. couldn't, right? And she couldn't be. And so, uh, you know, me and you were talking about, you know, young man got all this testosterone, you know, we're dealing with all this other stuff. And I put it in the box. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty much what happened. You found a healthy place to put that. Yeah. And my teammates rallied around me, you know, uh, some of my best friends to this day, my team captains, you know, I was at home dealing with the stroke team captains called and checked on me. And then, uh, I talked to the Naval Academy and Naval Academy was like, you can stay there, take the semester off. I decided to go back. And I, uh, you know, my, my coach doesn't really remember this that much. I'm always reminding him, but I ended up going back to Annapolis, right? And I'm beat up, right? What was me? Mom's in the hospital. You know, here I am feeling all alone, right? Emotionally, physically drained. My coach is like, all right, you guys are fighting Army this weekend, next weekend. Stedman, you got a match. And deep down, I'm like, what the fuck you mean I got a match? My mom's in the hospital, right? Like, I'm dealing with a bunch of stuff here. Like, I'm not saying this to him, but I'm thinking this mentally. And you want me to go fight some badass Army yeah, guy? this guy was like, he goes on to be like Special Forces, I'm sure, or something, right? I'm boxing up West Point team captain. But I go, man, I feel like that part of me feels like that match changed my whole trajectory because I really would have done like the whole what was me thing, you know, but I end up going to West Point and we fight at Army and I'm going through it during the match. Right. Like because, you know, it's, it's like you're experiencing this. Right. You got to be pumped up to step inside a boxing ring. And I am feeling so defeated mentally. But when you're in the ring one-on-one -on -one with another man, you're facing all your fears. So you're having all this internal dialogue. And I had to pull my pull myself up, right? And up winning the boxing match. And I just remember coming out of the ring, saying all this motivational stuff, you know, just to my teammates, like, 
Anything's possible. Did you win the fight? I won. Yeah. You, and that, beat, you beat the West Point captain? I beat fight? the West Point captain. And then, sure enough, that year, I won the Brigade Boxing Championship, which is our internal boxing championship to get the team, to select the team to go compete at nationals. I lost to a guy the year prior that had way more experience than me. I come in my sophomore year. Yep. Beat him. Same guy who beat you the year before. Yeah. I walk out to Kanye West's Hey Mama. Yeah. Right? I got it tattooed on me. <laughs> I win the fight. I end up going to nationals. I win the first two bouts by knockout. Right? I ended up winning the national championship and getting selected for most viable boxer. What did that feel like? Me and you were talking about this, right? So I'm always aware because I kind of have this, I don't want to say a cheat code, but now I've experienced it. Part of me was this belief that if I won this national championship, it was going to make all my problems go away. You know, they're like, oh, your mom's in the hospital. You know, life is hard. But if I just win that national championship, you know, solve all my problems, right? Then you win the championship. And now what? Guess what? You're still Mike Stedman. You know, your mom's still in the hospital. You've been gone from class a week, right? All those tests and makeup exams, they're waiting for you when you get back, you know? So what ends up happening? I end up going back and had to do it again, you know? And it wasn't necessarily this chasing this high, but it was just more of like boxing was my safe space. You know, it was that thing of like, no matter how, hard life was as long as I stayed close to boxing right everything would be okay and boxing got me through the Naval Academy boxing got me through Afghanistan you know and so I felt this trust with boxing when I was getting ready to go through that transition out of military that there's something here like I don't necessarily know exactly what it is but I'm willing to bet there are a lot of young men that look like me and women that can benefit from this and I don't know how to package it. I don't know anything about entrepreneurship, right? But I think there's something here. And you found it. I found it. Well, and I would, I would assert that not only did you find it, but you, you know, one of my sort of mental models, if you will, is uh, finding your place versus making your place. Yeah. You know, in, in, in a lot of ways, school and maybe the military, you can tell me, uh, is, is, is about teaching us to find our place. But the truth is there's many of us who have to make our place. Yeah. And so you found boxing, which is cool, but you also leverage boxing to make your place first in the military. And then now today as an entrepreneur. Yeah. I think it's, um, so here's the hard part, right? When I moved to Newark and I had this idea, this boxing program, Foundations weren't throwing their money at funding inner city boxing and a kid in the community, right? Inner city. Well, you got everything. You know, when you say Newark, people are like, oh, why are you moving there? Right. I still get that, you know? Um, so I just felt like the city would get it because there's agency in urban communities with boxing. Boxing is a poor man sport, always has been. And, you know, we talk about marketing and branding and categories on Muhammad Ali. Whoever's there gonna, who can sell boxing more than Muhammad Ali? You know, he's legendary, right? In my opinion, one of the greatest category designers of all time. I mean, in, in a very, very real way, um, he was the first athlete of consequence and he was the most famous athlete in the world when he did it to become a social activist. 
Absolutely. And that was a new category design. We, today we have that. Today we have, you know, LeBron taking positions on stuff. And of course, we have a lot of artists, musicians, actors, and so forth who get involved with stuff. And, you know, I'm sure there were others in the past, but but there was nobody at his level. I mean, when Muhammad Ali did what he did and said, I'm not going to go to Vietnam, uh, he was the highest profile athlete in the world and one of the highest profile people in the world. And it's not just that. And honestly, like... Muhammad Ali might have been like one of the original podcasters, if you think about it, right? He talked to everybody, right? Muhammad Ali could go to Philly and box in some of the grungiest gyms, you know, in the city and then go sit down with the president or go sit down with people that thought they were smarter than him, you know, that tried to get them trapped, you know, on an interview and they walk away from that interviewing, you know, <laughs> Who's the smart one and who's the dumb one yeah. now? <laughs> so in urban communities, you don't have to sell boxing. Boxing sells itself. You know, we talk about, is there a demand? You know, it's about damn the demand, Jen, right? There's a demand in the inner city for boxing. You know, these kids are looking for small wins. They want to feel like a champion. You know, they want to feel confident. They want to feel like Muhammad Ali, you know? And it's, it's for me, when you think about how prolific he is as a, as a man, as an American, as an athlete, if you see what a boxing gym, it's not nothing crazy. A heavy bag, a ring, maybe, some gloves and wraps, and you're telling me that this grungy, sweaty, leaky space produces the GOAT? And there's something that's prolific about that. And I think now, especially in the fitness community, you have so many people trying to chase that experience right that's why you got all these fitness boxing gyms that are popping up all over whatever well guess what in places like newark we don't have equinox you know we don't have you know ufc gyms in the hood right <laughs> so we have amateur boxing gyms run by a lot of ex-cons run by police officers run by people in the trenches right and there's something there and there's a demand for it but the problem is sometimes when you're dealing with urban communities when we're dealing with philanthropy we're dealing with all this stuff a lot of times it can be this top-down approach instead of where is the demand you're trying to force the demand on these people and i'm not knocking i will never knock some of these organizations right we're all trying to make the world better you know but sometimes you got to meet people where they are you know so it, while it's a great idea to go to newark and get kids signed up for coding boot camps and everything how about you go hang out with them in the gym first you know, how about you go hang out with them, you know, in the park playing basketball or something and then use that to demand in the other things to damn the demand to take the the young person who's uh, understands and, and and is attracted to boxing and use that attraction to boxing as a way to build a person. And the, the dot that I just. I will forever love you for connecting is the dot between boxing and entrepreneurship. Can we take a young person who's attracted to the challenge of that, to what it would mean for their confidence if they got good at that, the courage it takes to summon and execute against that and translate that same set of qualities that they're trying to develop in themselves into, and now you can be an entrepreneur and create a life for yourself and hopefully build a business and make a difference for your community and so forth. Uh, not just through boxing, but through entrepreneurship. You know, um, people always ask me, Oh, what does it take to be part of your program? Well, when, when I'm talking externally about it, I'm like, they just got to show up. 
And for some people, you know, everybody's like, oh, you got this crazy onboarding process. You got to do this to this. For a kid in Newark to choose to catch the bus or get a ride or walk three miles or something, right? If they do that to show up at our boxing gym and do it consistently, right? That lets me know something, that they're committed, that they want to be there. And there are tons of people that will come in. Their parents will bring them in. And here's interesting. Whenever a parent calls and says, oh, I want my kid to box, I want him to be tougher, or blah, 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 right? They'll show up to the gym. We'll put them through a workout or something, and you'll never see the kid again. When a kid is proactive and reaches out and calls or reaches out to us via Instagram, that's why we're on Instagram, mainly to communicate with the kids. Anytime that happens, when a kid reaches out himself, 99.9% of the time, they keep showing up. And so um, in the entrepreneur world, you've done a kind of interesting category design. You've combined boxing and entrepreneurship. And now uh, you've developed this love of marketing and category design. And you've got a marketing agency, branding agency, Dog Whistle Branding. And you're doing podcasting production. And you're focused on other veteran entrepreneurs, helping them build their categories and brands and helping them launch successful podcasts. So you've got a, you've got a set of services and then you've niched down on the vet community, veteran entrepreneurs. So, so, so tell me about why that. Well, there's a couple of things. Um, when I was up against it, trying to sell the vision for Ironbound Boxing, trying to raise money from corporate donors and all this other stuff, right? I wasn't getting a lot of love. But you know who stepped up to the plate? The veteran community. They're right. They get boxing. You know, McMaster just wrote an article about the warrior ethos, right? And cultivating that warrior ethos, right? So what I started to notice that veteran small businesses from all across the country or classmates of mine at the Naval Academy, who I've maybe said one or two words to in my entire life, were sending me donations to support the work I was doing with Ironbound. So we call it over. I call it Overwatch. You know, when you go in combat, right? You set up Overwatches. So if I'm going on patrol, maybe I put a sniper team up on the roof to watch us, or on a hill or something. So what I realized with Ironbound Boxing was that all across the country, veterans have had Overwatch on us. So when they come across someone or an opportunity to support the work we're doing, they send them our way. And I just realized that being an entrepreneur, right? And we don't talk about this enough. Of we're spending a lot of time working on our ventures. Doesn't it make sense to work on things that you're passionate about, hang out with people you like being around? And what I found out was I like being around veterans. And the other thing was I got pretty good at branding and storytelling with Ironbound Boxing. And there's a lot of veteran businesses out there that struggle with delivering their value. A lot of veterans that struggle delivering their value in general, going back to what we were talking about, communicating that value. And uh, you know, thanks to you mentoring me, reading play bigger niche down right really just diving into the weeds i found out that i have the skill of communicating and i realized that through uh category design process that veteran small businesses veteran entrepreneurs we need our own marketing and branding category and i decided to call it dog whistle branding thank you for that uh, i'll never forget you stopped me in my tracks in one of our early conversations i think it might have been right after you read play bigger um where you said something like, 
you know, my people don't know about this shit. The veteran community doesn't know about this shit. Uh, the black entrepreneur community doesn't know about category design. Um, and it just really struck me. And you and I, we've been talking since you got here about Stanford and Stanford wasn't for you and Hoover wasn't for you. And all these, these things seem like they were built for somebody else that you were not invited. And so tell me a little bit about sort of what it has meant to bring marketing, entrepreneurship and category design to the veteran community. They're hungry for it. There's something about business and bootstrapping a business or raising capital or whatever you're doing. That is like the modern hero's journey. And I'm not trying to be hokey pokey or anything like that, but you know, we're not slaying any real dragons out here in life, right? The courage Academy though, that's a dragon, you know, that's uh, tumble, right? I got a buddy, Scott Patterson, that uh, has got a, a laundry startup called Tumble. They're introducing smart laundry to the ecosystem, right? So fucking cool. That's a dragon. He's going after a big one. He's going after it, right? So, and for a lot of veterans that are transitioning, right? Like some tend to be risk averse, right? They've already sacrificed so much, you know, been gone from home a lot, family, all this other stuff, right? Some can be beat up. And scared to chase those dragons, but they're also looking for a sense of purpose and meaning. And going on this entrepreneurial journey is one way to experience it. But the dream is free and the hustle sold separately. And so it's not always what we sell in the media and on Fortune magazine. I mean, you're sleeping on couches, right? You're paying yourself in pennies, all for the opportunity to go on the journey. And so for me to help de-risk that process for my community is I'm very passionate about it, you know? Um, you know, when I think of urban entrepreneurs, when I think of veterans, right? We Like, not all these groups can afford to waste their life savings right out the gate, you know? For some of them, this may be their only opportunity, you know? So, you know, I mean, you, we can talk about this, but when you talk about, like, black entrepreneurs, right? Like, I don't like the model of, for everyone that's a success, we leave 100 in the graveyard, right? The whole concept of lift as we climb of, like, you know, maybe we have 50% fail, you know, <laughs> 20, 30%, right? But I, I, I can't be comfortable with, you know, one to 5% succeeding and we leave 95% of these ventures in the graveyard. And so for me, with dog whistle branding, with the way I speak about entrepreneurship, right? I am trying to lift as we climb, right? I want more success, right? I want to de-risk it as much as possible for these communities that I'm a part of so that they can participate and succeed uh, in their entrepreneurial journey. Thank you for that. And if I was, um, if I was a vet and maybe I just finished my service, I was where you were several years ago. And, uh, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Trying, I was working on my plan. And uh, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe entrepreneurship. What would you counsel me about? What, what would you get me thinking about? The first thing I would ask you is, uh, what is your tactical advantage? Right? What is something that you bring that no one else brings? Right? So I'll use Hoover as an example. Right? Here I am with some of the most prolific minds in the country. Can be slightly intimidating. Right? If I go try to compete on economic policy, you know, with the guy that's got a PhD in economics, that's been at the White House, whatever, right? 
That's attrition warfare. <laughs> it's a terrible idea, right? If I go and talk about boxing and talk about urban entrepreneurship in Newark, New Jersey, I talk about youth development through sports. I talk about boxing, right? That's a category of one. That's a category king. There is no competition there. It's not even close. You're the expert, right? Then I add the veteran angle on it, right? They don't know my lived experiences as a Marine infantry officer in Afghanistan. You can write the papers on it, whatever, but have you been in combat? You know, have you been mortared? Have you felt that experience? The answer is no. So you carve out your own lane. But part of that is understand, okay, what tactical advantages do I bring? It can be a regional level. It can be a knowledge level, whatever. So that's the first thing, right? Second thing I ask myself, who do I enjoy spending my time with? What fires me up, right? I don't want to be around people that drain me, right? Who are the people that I'm like, damn, I would really love to spend time around. That's the next thing. Then I would say, okay, who's doing what I want to do, right? Or has been, you know, where I want to be. And as a podcaster, people ask me this all the time. What podcast do you listen to? I listen to podcasts of people I admire to learn about them. Like the conversation you had with Bruce Cleveland, from Wildcat Ventures. How else am I ever going to sit down and hear these private room conversations, right? Now, thanks to this medium. And people are talking about their journey, right? So you listen and you learn. You find someone. So that's the one thing. And that's our aspiration, right? That's our aspirational identity. The next thing is, going back to what we said before, is it depends on what kind of entrepreneur you are, right? If you are looking to bootstrap, which a lot of veterans are, to be honest, you need to look for opportunities where people are already spending money, where there's already demand in the marketplace. And damn, like you said, the demand into your own niche. So I'll give you an example, right? My company is really is Ironbound Media, a podcast production agency. A lot of veteran-owned businesses, small businesses, they're not necessarily spending a lot of money on podcasting. But you know where they spend a lot of money on? Marketing and branding, because marketing and branding drives revenue. And anytime you tell somebody that you can help them increase their revenue, they're interested in listening. So what I'm doing with Dog Whistle Branding, I'm damning the demand that these businesses are spending on random social media posts, you know, account managers and all this stuff and say, hey, what if we can do this smarter, more efficiently, have fun doing it with a podcast? So damning that demand. So I will look for that. Find opportunities and you're going to know it because they're going to already be spending money. This is not theoretical. You need to know that people are spending money on this stuff. When I start finding out that veteran owned businesses are spending 3,500 a month on a social media manager, you know, $300,000 on Facebook ads for terrible ROI. I'm like, people are spending money in these on marketing branding. So that's the thing. Find out where people are spending money. And then what you need to do, you need to go out there and you need to come up with a business model or an idea and you can do it on one page, problem, solution, immediate next steps, create a list of, of products, bronze, silver, platinum, throw a pricing on it and go see how you can sell it. If you have a consumer package, good company, create some in your kitchen, throw a label on it and go out and try to sell it and get those beta customers, figure out if there's really demand there. And once you validate that you have something people are want and you validate because they're paying you for it, then you can decide to build out a business around it and you de-risk the venture and you start to work towards that revenue number, you know? So there's five stages of small business growth. Harvard Business Review published an article on it. A business coach named Michelle Warner, she kind of refined it. 
Step one, validate the business model. Step two, recurring revenue via sales. So step two is sales. But you need to not move past this point until you can predict that, hey, I'm going to bring in $5,000 next month. I'm going to bring in $10,000 next month. If you can't get to that level, you need to stay there and tweak and work, get your messaging and branding. Phase three is you build the foundation. Now you're starting to document systems and processes and you're bringing on new team members. You're building your team, your core out. Stage four, expand. Maybe you go to a second location, right? You know, you, let, you scale up just a little bit. And then the final stage is multiply. And that's really what, and I think that works for startups too. You know, it's just a great way to be strategic about your approach to business and entrepreneurship. And the thing is, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? I'm a history major, which is what's so mind-boggling about this. I didn't go to graduate school at Rutgers for uh, business. I wrote about race, culture, and gender in American studies. I was taking like sexuality and sexual politics and studying James Baldwin and the labor movement and all this stuff. And I just happened to become an entrepreneur getting the Hustlers MBA. Well, and I'm biased, and I have a lot of MBA friends, of course, and God bless them, but there's nothing more valuable in business than a a street fighting MBA, right? The other interesting thing, uh, I I loved meeting you in the beginning because of this connection between fighting and entrepreneurship. I I had this aha uh, maybe 10 years ago. You know, I'm a huge fight fan, as you know, and, and... uh, you're absolutely right. F- boxing and, and, and martial arts tends to be a poor person's sport. You know, I've hung out with some of the, uh, some of the guys in the UFC and, you know, they say stuff like, uh, you know, getting hit in the face is a dumb person's way to make a living, you know, stuff uh-huh. like that. And so, um, if you, if you listen to almost any, you know, there's exceptions, but almost any fighter, male or females, story. Their story is, I was staring down a, a horrible future. I, my, my present was not looking very good and I had you know nowhere to go. And it was either going to be a very tough life, a very mean life or fighting. And so I choose fighting and fighting as a result was not just a way up in the world. It was a way out. And I had this aha that and maybe I'm stupid, but I'd never thought about it that way that you know, there are entrepreneurs, what today we call biggie entrepreneurs, who they graduate from Stanford, they write an algorithm, they, they raise 400 million bucks on Sand Hill Road, and they build this incredible giant public company and all that. And, and that is totally cool. And I'm, as you know, I've spent most of my life in that kind of world. But there's a lot of us entrepreneurs, myself included, that's not my story. Boxing is a way out. And entrepreneurship is a way out. The biggest mistake we make as a community in the boxing community and the coaches are trying, right? We don't have a pathway for our kids out of these gyms at scale. You you see it in the pro ranks, right? People are always like, oh, why is this guy still fighting? Why is Holyfield still fighting? Part of it is they love it, of course. But what else are they going to do? Right. You take a kid, you know, Mike Tyson says he grew up like an animal on the streets, you know, in Brownsville wearing pissy clothes. He smelled like piss. He was bullied. You know, a guy like that's not going to be on the trading floor in Wall Street. You know, a guy like that is not going to go get an MBA from Warden or Stanford or wherever. 
So what options do these kids really have once they're no longer boxing? And so they keep fighting. They keep fighting. It's basic. Think about this. It's basic finance, right? I'm a professional boxer and I make $3 million in one night from a fight, right? How hard is it to make that again outside of the ring? You know, Floyd Mayweather, where are you going to make $100 million in one day? And I don't care who you are. You feel those losses, right? You know, so you're like, dang, I could go make this quick another hundred million. You know, so you what happens? You keep keep fighting. You keep fighting. Now, he's smart. He put his money with it. But most of these boxers where are the boxers from the 70s. The Wilfrito Benitez is, you know, and the Roberto Durans and all these people that we put on the pedestal. Right. Leon Spinks. Right. Joe Frazier. You know, the, the, the stories aren't very nice. Well, I, I, ESPN ran that series. I forget the name of it. Maybe you remember where they sort of looked at life after sports. And I, I forget the number, but it was some terrifying number. It might have been 80%. Or it was a very, very high percentage of professional athletes, whether it's you know baseball, basketball, fighting, whatever it is, are bankrupt within less than 10 years uh, of making these multi-million dollar, uh, having these multi-million dollar careers. And so, you know, not only is there not another place, you know, we had Daryl Strawberry on my podcast, you know, in the early days when we were still called Legends and Losers. And, you know, he's talking to me about how he was one of the highest paid baseball players of all time. And he's living on his sister's couch in his early 40s and he's bankrupt, you know, because they don't learn how to manage your money and they don't learn how to become entrepreneurs. You know, we had Andre Iguodala on the podcast. And he became an angel investor. One of the reasons he wanted to play for the Warriors was to try to plug himself into Silicon Valley and learn that world. Uh, and he, he, he said to me, uh, sitting right here like you are, you know, he said, in my world, people don't learn. They don't, we don't, no one even teaches us how to manage a fucking credit card. And so he wanted to learn business, wanted to learn entrepreneurship, wanted to become uh, an investor. Yeah. Um, and again, it's like it's not complicated, right? Eve, let's say you make a million dollars a year as a boxer, right? You average bring on a million dollars a year, do two fights a year. You retire, now you're dropped down to like, say, 100000 if you're lucky. If you put the money away, you're living off the interest. Most of them aren't doing that, right? That's a big loss, right? Even just a business, a business that's used to making a million dollars a year in revenue, then you drop down to 75 k and people are getting let go, you know? It's a, it's a bad day, right? So... That's what we're setting these kids up with as they pursue professional sports. So for me, I'm not the biggest fan of professional boxing. I don't really watch a lot of professional boxing. I watch the highlights. I love amateur boxing. It's pure. You know, kid doesn't even know what he's searching for. He's just searching. And we we, we have these belt shows. You know, people talking. People are talking now about the, what is it called? Uh, everyone gets a trophy. What is that? What's that? What's that? Uh, what do people yeah, say? Yeah, it's it, that's what they say. I mean, it's we live in this uh, uh, this world where nobody loses and we don't keep score and all that sort yeah. of bullshit, right? Well, everybody doesn't get a trophy. Here's what I would tell you: in amateur boxing, you have boxing shows and you have belt shows. If a kid knows he has an opportunity to fight for a belt, these kids fly from all, I mean, they'll drive from all over the country to come to places like Newark, New Jersey, Patterson, New Jersey, right? For opportunity to compete for a belt, fucking bloodbath. I mean, they fight the heart, you know what I mean? Their heart and soul and whatever. 
right? You know why else? Dude, these kids in the inner city, why else are going to get to feel like a champion? You know? And again, the, the thing that I'm unapologetic about with Ironbound, I'm not going after the sure bets. You know, I'm sure I could go around around Newark and get all the valedictorians and the well-spoken kids and the, the kids that are going places, right? Put them under the umbrella, put an Ironbound hoodie on them and say, this is our guy. This is our, I, I like the not so sure bets. You know, most of the kids we put in front of camera, they have never been on camera before because no one has ever highlighted them for anything. If you're a black kid in the inner city and you're not good at sports, I'm talking about football, basketball, track field, or you don't have the best grades, whatever. Who's highlighting you? Why does anybody want to hear your story? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that it would be very easy to feel like a nobody pretty fast. We talk about adults and imposter syndrome. The first documentary I had done on us at Ironbound was uh, by the newest American projects at Rutgers Newark. And I had to identify some kids to be in the film. They're there to shoot. And follow this kid around school. And I'm like, where is he? He's hiding in the bathroom. Who am I to be on camera? You know? Who am I to, uh, what do I have to say? And more, more importantly, why would anybody want to listen? I haven't done anything. I'm just a kid. You know, I have a shirt just saying, just a kid from Newark. I'm just a kid from Newark. Why do anybody have anything I want to have to say or hear what I have to say? I have to give this kid a pep talk in the bathroom just to go out there and sit in class and be filmed while he's in class. These kids are not used to getting highlighted. And what we do through our program is we present opportunities to highlight them. You know, I don't force anything on them, right? The idea is I just want you to meet your potential wherever it is. I don't say at risk anymore. I don't say disadvantaged. I don't say marginalized, right? maybe underestimated, right? But they just give them an opportunity. Old Mike said when I first moved to Newark, I might be like, you need to go to Naval Cab, you need to go here, you need to go, you need to do what's best for you. And I'm gonna support you in whatever way we can with the, the network that we have and the resources that we have. I assume it's true for everybody, but that said, I know it's true for um Anyone who feels like in one way or another, they grew up on the island of misfit toys where they felt they had an experience of life where they didn't see opportunity and people, it felt like people were betting against them. People were telling you what you couldn't do. People were saying it wasn't possible. When it takes somebody to believe in you at some point, it, it, it takes somebody to bet on your f future potential, not your past performance. And until that person comes along, I mean, I know for me, I was, I was, I was lost until people started betting on me for no fucking reason. You know, there's no evidence that I was worth betting on. And so, um, tell me a little bit about when you bet on these kids that are the Island of Misfit Toys, how they change. So during the pandemic, I'm looking around Newark, gyms closed. I'm beat up a little bit. That's when I came with the name Iron Mike. It was just my way of fighting back, you know? Fuck it. Iron Mike, let's go. And I started to get myself back, you know? Because you have to remind yourself. You talk about, I don't know if it was you and Play Bigger or Todd Herman and uh, what's his book? Um, the Alter Ego Effect. Sometimes you got to give yourself a ground punch. 
You know, me and you were grabbing burritos this morning and you introduced me to the nice lady behind the counter and she made a comment with the resume like that. You must be somebody. And I turn and look at you and I was like, Chris, you see what I'm talking about? But when life is hard, sometimes we forget who the hell we forget who we are. And so I'm sitting in my one bedroom apartment in Newark with no revenue coming in. Gym is closed. I had to give myself a ground punch. Fucking Naval Academy graduate. Fucking three-time national boxing champion. You know, Marine infantry officer. Fucking Iron Mike Stedman. You know? And I get myself back up. And so one of the things that, through my experience with entrepreneurship, coming out to Stanford in 2017 to the Stanford Knight program to work on Ironbound Boxing at the time, I had always just believed of again, lifting as I climb. So I'm having all these amazing experiences. How can I share these in our own way in Newark? So I'd always had this idea for a pitch competition, you know, just kind of expose the kids to, you know, entrepreneurship, whatever. I was going to give away like a thousand dollars, nothing crazy. Which is a little bit like holding one of those, uh, those yeah. belt tournaments, right? Correct. And, uh, so I start, you know, we talk about demand. Is there demand there? I literally texted a few friends and said, hey, I'm doing this pitch competition for the kids. Nobody was doing nothing in Newark because we got an artificial economy. All the corporate uh, offices that are there, none of those people live in the city. So when they're gone, it's a ghost town, right? Small businesses shut. You know, we were, it was very bad. It was depressing. We were in an economic depression in Newark. So I'm like, I got to do something. I'm a leader. I'm a Marine. We're going to do this pitch competition. But I started texting people. And boom, the demand was there, you know, then, you know, George Floyd happened and we had already been in the trenches pounding pavement since 2017. But a lot of my peers, my buddies were like, I want to know what Mike's thinking, whatever. So we ended up launching this pitch competition, organized the board for it and we're ready to go. But then somebody sent me this uh, tweet from Paul Graham and was like, youth doing pitch competitions is blah, blah, blah. Basically, it was a waste of time. And I looked at the way he presented it, and he was right in some regard. You can't just prepare kids to do a pitch competition, right? It's more the thought process that goes into it. So I was like, I'm setting these kids up for failure if we're just going to do some pitch competition. There needs to be a program to prepare them to pitch. So I put together a little four-week boot camp, right, called Thrive. And at the end of that, they would – get a grant between $500 and $2,000 if they submit a business plan, a financial plan, and a personal essay. And so the first cohort, we only did six, right? Gave out six checks. The second cohort, as long as you submitted the financial plan, you know, kind of like walk into the gym, keep showing up. We had this dinner um, at a restaurant in Newark called Sahana, and I had all the kids there. I got a video for it. And one of the young man's name is Goncalos. And uh, when I gave him a check for $1,000, he was shaking. And he started crying, kind of like I was crying on this podcast, you know. There's one thing to talk about someone and say, I believe in you. There's another thing to say, I believe in you. And here's an investment to show you that I believe in you. And I'm with you in your corner along the way. And if you get stuck, call me and let's figure it out. This kid took that check. I can't... <laughs> Let's just say he's probably brought in over $20,000 for his venture. <laughs> it's so fucking great. Now, um, is there anything you want to say about, um, about combat? You know, and I haven't really articulated this yet. So please forgive me if I'm saying something, you know, wrong around this. But 
you know, a lot of people talk about PTSD, post-traumatic stress, you know, all the horrors and stuff people experience, right, in combat. I got kids in Newark that have been shot at, that have seen violence, that have experienced all these things. I never hear the conversation talking about, you know, PTSD within urban communities. Yeah. The trauma of getting let go from your job, you know. I think a lot of people are depressed, if I'm being honest. I think a lot of these young men are apathetic. And I think they numb themselves, very similar to how veterans numb themselves. Drinking and all this other stuff, just to kind of whatever, you know. I mean, I can sure as hell relate. I mean, sometimes things that are happening to you, things that are happening in the world, I'll speak for myself. The the the, the only logical response is uh, is some whiskey and some Mary Jane. I mean, you just got to you got to get away from it. That's how it can feel. And for me, having that combat experience, right? Being shot at, being mortared, being in the combat zone for you know six months in Afghanistan, in 2012, right? The things that keep me up at night have less to do with the things I've experienced in combat. You know, <laughs> I mean, we're not like people got upset, and I, I got upset about this, you know, because LinkedIn, the LinkedIn universe, right? Sometimes, like, and we're we're guilty of this as veterans, right? This, like, oh, we've got this experience. You know, you don't know what it's like. You don't know this. You don't know that, right? So when the pandemic first hit, you know, Mark Andreessen, right, had always talked about wartime CEO. And if you look at my LinkedIn profile, I was like, I'm a wartime CEO. Once I read that book, that is me trying to sell this Ironbound venture. And, you know, when the pandemic hit, though, you know, you had CEOs coming out saying it's time to be a wartime CEO, whatever. And, you know, how you do your little voice that I call you that I like. You had some veterans out there. You're not a wartime CEO. You didn't go to combat, whatever. I live in Newark. It broke my heart seeing these small businesses fight tooth and nail to keep the doors open, to keep their staff employed. And then having the legs cut out underneath them, you know, for the safety, obviously. But it was a losing battle. It felt like the Alamo. And I felt emotional for them, you know? These are some of our donors, right? They gave us a $600 check, but I saw them stressing and nervous of just doing everything they can. They're following every protocol, and then the lockdown happened, and it was, they couldn't do anything, only essential businesses. And to be shut down for, God, I mean, how long, right? A long time. Some of them never recovered, you know? And so for me, it was like, I felt the anxiety from that, you know? Combat didn't keep me up at night during the pandemic. It was, how am I going to keep Ironbound alive? Yeah, and I think part of the story that has been forgotten, to your point, in a lot of major urban centers like where you live, where uh, there are high-end office towers and stuff, the people who work there don't live there. And, and the local economy in that situation are the diners and the delis and the sandwich shops and the bars and the dry cleaners and all that stuff who service you know, those white collar knowledge workers who are in those buildings. Well, they didn't go to work. And in, in many cases, they're still not going to work. And so if you own the deli uh, next to uh, next to the big you know building where ABC insurance is and nobody goes there anymore, you're not selling sandwiches. Yeah. And I'm not ducking the combat question. But for me, it's like, you know, I uh, we can always spend so much time focusing on external things. And for me, I've just been 
And we're talking about this. Am I speaking from a place of privilege now? Yeah. Right. I love that you have to ask yourself that question. <laughs> you know, I wake up day to day and I'm not worried about racism. Right. I'm worried about can Mike accomplish the things that are on his list today? Can I get this to the client on time? Can I get this to that? And I'm at a level now, but I haven't always been here. I know what it's like when you feel like you're just up against it. Right. I've been carrying this ironbound boxing flag for almost six years now. And I'm not, I'm not wealthy by any means. Right. It's a hustle, but I'm in a, I'm in a space now. And it's like, do I even recognize myself anymore? Because you're the other people now. And that's a hard thing to process. Mike. You have a Stanford email address now. <laughs> yes, I have a Stanford email, ironmike at stanford.edu, which is crazy. You're working with Condoleezza Rice. Working with Condi Rice. And H.R. McMaster. And some of your donors you're, you, who've been donating to uh, Ironbound are pretty significant individuals in our country. They are. Um, and I don't want to say this negatively about the racism, but what I'm saying is... I give it too much validity, right? Like I love James Baldwin. I love Malcolm X. I love Richard Wright. I love all these people reading them. They're prolific authors. But I think for me, we only have one life to live and to use it bitter, to be bitter about things and bitter about people. I think that's the ultimate betrayal of, uh, it's giving it too much power. I'm giving you too much power over me to rob me of a happy and fulfilling life. And now what I'm doing, I'm doing everything in my power to avoid that. And it goes back to I, who I spend my time. I don't swim upstream anymore. Maybe that's a cop out. I don't know. I don't swim upstream, right? Like if you don't like Iron Mike, <laughs> then maybe I'm not for you. If I can't come with a beard and a Mohawk fade, maybe I'm not for you. And, you know, I was at an event at Stanford. They had this veterans dinner for us. I was the only black person in the room, literally the only black person in the room. But the fact that I did it in my way, coming there through boxing, that I could be myself, that everyone was so respectful and so nice to me, right? I didn't feel it in the same way I might have back in the day, you know? It'd been one thing if I came there chucking and jiving, you know, and I had to fake because you know people spend 50 percent of their day lying hiding and faking who they are but i very i showed up my authentic self and i felt accepted and that's just a different experience you know so i just i'm very self-aware and want to make sure that like there are some people that will take the way i speak and talk and try to put me on this you know candace owens pedestal or you know these far right that's not me at all but going back to that stuff, where it's like, I kind of am the American dream. And I have to sit with that. And now that I have the Naval Academy background and I have the Hoover background, you know, Hoover veteran, a fellow background and the Stanford connections, anything I don't do up until this point is really on me. And that's something that really doesn't get talked about, which is. Whether it's racism or being poor or like we were talking about earlier this morning when we were having breakfast about how all these places are not for me. You know, I can remember being a, a, a teenager and reading business magazines and 
seen pictures of these guys on the front cover with suits on and ties on and looking amazing and these celebrated guys and going, well, you know, that, 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 I mean, that's not me. I mean, I could never, like, I didn't even think about making it in Silicon Valley. I never thought I was going to leave Montreal, you know? And so there's an insidious part of this, which is in a lot of ways, our success in life is, is a function of our relationship with ourselves and the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and who we're not. And, and this, this negativity, whether it's racism, negativity or economic negativity or whatever you want to call it can trick us into adopting a victim mentality. And, you know, one of my favorite authors of all time is Richard Bach. And of course he said so many incredible things, but one of them is argue for your limitations and sure enough, they're yours. Yeah, I think, again, when I got out, I, I, I didn't think I was smart enough to go to a business program. I didn't think I was smart enough to pass the, the GMAT. You know, I took the SAT six times. I was never good at math. Graduated the Naval Academy with like a 2-4, right? And, you know, when there's all this pressure of, oh, you could, you know, people would always tell me, you could go to Stanford, you could go to these places. I never believed it myself. I didn't believe it, quite frank. And so I didn't try. I didn't take a swing at it. Well, and you know, here's the crazy thing. And, and this, you piss me off about education. Because one of the things I say to people uh, when I describe you to them is you're one of the greatest learners I know. You know, I was, t I was telling a friend of mine this morning about you and I was saying to her, Mike's read everything. He's read all the Drucker. You, you, you've read You've read more business books than I have from, you've read all the shit from the greats. I mean, anytime I've ever mentioned to you a book that was important to me, a business book, I can't remember one time I mentioned a business book to you that you haven't already read. And when we were in the studio upstairs, you know, a little while ago, you're looking at the books and you're asking me, you know, is Loon Shots a good book? And I said, yeah, it's a great book. Safi was on the podcast. He's really great here. You should, you should, if you want to read it, take it. And you took it. Right. And so, you're an incredible fucking learner and student. You may not have fit into the academic mold, right? But the reality is you have fucking taught yourself business and, in, and by, by reading and by doing. And you've read it all. I mean, I think you're an incredible example of being a legendary lifelong student, but yet who was underserved and fucked up like me by the education system. And it's, it's sort of crazy that such a guy with such a thirst for knowledge and information who loves to read about so many different things. It's insane that, that it, you didn't do well in school. Like it says a lot more about the school than it does about you. I w I'm an autodidact. I didn't know that. I will never succeed sitting in the classroom five days a week for eight hours a day. But like this program that the Hoover uh, Veteran Fellowship, the pro that uh, Stanford and I mean that Hoover put together, being able to come out here for weeks, working intense sprints, design thinking, you know, adding tools to our toolbox, going out and executing, coming back, check-ins, you know, I have a business coach, right? I can craft my own education in a way like the whole world is an education, you know, podcasting, reading, audio books doing YouTube videos. So that's how I, I really um, teach myself. And there's a book by a guy named Gay Hendricks called The Big Leap. 
one of the things I took away from it, you know, he talks about we got the zones of genius. You got the zone of incompetence, the zone of uh, competence, the zone of excellence, and the zone of genius. And most people spend their life in the zone of excellence. They're good at the job. There's always somebody better than them. Your zone of genius, there ain't nobody better than you. I think I'm the best at building grassroots amateur boxing programs from the ground up and showing kids how to be entrepreneurs. I literally believe I'm the best at that. Also in the book, which I had to learn, was he talks about how to receive compliments. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I feel like looking at the ground when someone says, Mike Stedman, you're so amazing, or you know, you went to the Naval Academy where you compliment me. And he talks about instead of looking at the ground, instead of looking at a way, just kind of sit back and receive it and take it. And when I was at the gym, I made a comment that I was heading out to Stanford and one of my kids, you know, you got to be in the know. Like, Naval Academy gives me no street cred on the streets of Newark. <laughs> Hoover gives me no street creds on the streets of Newark. Occasionally, maybe, you know, somebody who knows something. But I got a boxer named Fetty, and he goes to Rutgers. And when I mentioned I was coming out here to the, to the Hoover Institute at uh, Stanford University, he goes, wow, you must be smart. Now, old Mike Stedman would probably say, uh, how are we? And I just kind of paused, took a deep breath, and I was like, I guess so. And, you know, for us as veterans, right, we're not, it's not good in the veteran community. In the military, you don't walk around with your, with, you know, pumping your chest, I'm so amazing, I'm so awesome. But when you get in the civilian world, there's this constant battle, like, you got to talk yourself up, man. You got to really, you got to really sell yourself. So a lot of us are afraid to kind of do that, you know, but on paper, that's why I get emotional because when I look at myself on paper, I'm a badass, but I don't always feel like a badass, but it doesn't matter because when people read that, that's what they think, right? Mike, how could they not? You know, it was like when I introduced you to my friend Evie at the store. I mean, with three or four sentences, it's like somebody realizes you're one of the biggest badasses they ever met. But it's, you know, it's, it's interesting, this process of owning who you are. Uh, a little while ago, we had Moby on the podcast, you know, the, the artist. And um, we started off talking about David Bowie because he grew up as a huge David Bowie fan. And he got to know David Bowie and, and make, make music with David Bowie. And on his most recent record, he has a very, what I would call haunting, beautiful cover of David Bowie's Heroes. And that song is one of my absolute favorite songs of all fucking time. And funnily enough, <clears throat> as a side note, my favorite version of that song is actually the Motorhead version of it. It's a real hard rock, punk rocky version of it. But in whatever version, of course, original form, and the, it's been covered a bunch. And I love the Moby cover as well. Anyway, so long story longer, we're talking about Bowie. And he's talking about having Bowie at his apartment in New York. And they're hanging out and this and that. And I said to him, this may sound like a weird question, but did David Bowie know he was David Bowie? And he said, yeah, I did. And I said, did it make him happy? And he said, yeah, for the most part it did. And I find myself today, Mike, when I see somebody who's been like incredibly successful, like I, I still read old magazines, like physical magazines. I forget which magazine it was, but 
one of the magazines came to the house not long ago. There was a uh, picture of uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, cover story on Dwayne The Rock Johnson. It's on the cover of the magazine. And, you know, you've got that classic, you know, his smile that it, that's now so famous. And I, I just looked at it. I haven't read the article yet, but I just looked at it. And the first thing I thought of is, God, I, I hope he's happy. And so there is something about owning who we are. And I think it can be a challenge for a lot of us. And so do you feel like you're starting to own who you are? I do. You know, one thing I will tell you um, for the longest time that I was embarrassed about was I got relieved in combat in Afghanistan. I led a bad mission in Afghanistan. No one was killed, uh, but it ended up me getting relieved for that. And so... And for those of us civilians, what exactly does relieved mean? It means fired. You got fired from that post you were in? I was on a combat operation in Afghanistan. Um, it was a three-week op. And uh, I, my commander lost confidence in my ability to lead. And uh, he relieved me of my command. And so uh, we were still on the op. So we were still in combat operations. So it'd be like, you know, hey, you take over his platoon. Lieutenant Stedman is no longer in command. So I experienced that. And I was always ashamed of it, you know, because I'm a Naval Academy grad. And that's the other thing, too, is that, like, there's so much pressure put on you, right, to succeed. And, you know, you want to talk about combat, here's the thing. And it didn't click until later. But, you know, you see the movies, right, where you see, or the video games, you can see where you're getting shot at from and all this other stuff. In combat, you can't see where you're getting shot at from. The enemy doesn't have tracers. You hear the sound. That's how you're able to tell where you're getting shot at from. And so, you know, we end up dropping bombs on a building in Afghanistan that I thought we were getting shot at from, which we weren't. Uh, maybe we were. Who knows, right? But either way, my commander lost confidence in my ability to lead, and I got let go. But, you know, you carry that with you. But it just, it wasn't until I started to get older, and I mean, like, within the last, like, two years, that I realized how impossible some of these situations we are put in. And the thing that us as veterans, and we're taught, you know, mission accomplishment, mission accomplishment, mission accomplishment. And at a certain point, you start to believe that you can literally accomplish the mission, no matter how hard, no matter how challenging it is. Right. That you can. There is a win that you got to figure it out. And if you don't, then it's on you. And so I've just kind of started to realize that even in the nonprofit sector. Right. We got nonprofits that are taking on impossible situations. World hunger, poverty, opioids. Right. What if these literally are impossible situations and we're expecting these organizations to solve them and figure them out and da 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 da. But it's a self-awareness that comes with that. And so for me, part of it has come with that with Afghanistan, with the idea that, yes, I'm a Naval Academy grad. Yes, I'm a Marine Corps infantry officer. Are there things I could have done better? Did I make some mistakes? Absolutely. But fundamentally, it was a fucking hard situation that we got put in, you know, and I just raised my hand as a leader and said, hey, I will lead this. And so living with that kind of embarrassment and that shame and then always worried about, is it going to get brought up again? You know, or if I ever run for public office, will people try to discredit me? You know, so there's all that stuff. So part of owning ourselves and the reason I bring that up is we have to own our scars and our mistakes and, you know, all of it. 
the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think a lot of people would rather much just own the good than own the ugly. And so on my podcast, Confessions of a Native Son, you know, I came out and I talked about my experience in the Marine Corps leading up to me getting relieved. And people were like, that was so brave of you. You also came back from that situation. I did. I had a great... And became an acknowledged leader in the Marine Corps after that. Yeah. It's not like you stayed down. Yeah. And, you know, on the podcast, I felt like I was... uh, I was never appreciated for my leadership in the Marine Corps, right? I was never made to feel like, oh, I was really good at this, that this was for me. But it also might have all been in my head, you know, because I had peers come, what are you talking about? You're a great officer, you know? I got Marines still texting me. You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was embarrassed about it. You know, as you know, we, we originally started off being called legends and losers and uh, made up a word. We we're talking about languaging earlier, made up a word called losery to make it sound nicer than it is <laughs> when we have a humiliating public loss. And uh, look, it's you know, my first business fail. I mean, I, I've had more failures than I'll ever have successes. Uh, but particularly in the beginning, when you haven't had some of those successes and you have massive losery, it's not fucking fun and it's not fucking funny. And you think N- no one's ever going to trust me with that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm finished. I, I, when my first business failed, I, I literally thought my life was over. I mean, yeah. I, I'm fucked and I'm 21 years old and I, yeah. I got no money. I'm in debt and I, I, I got nowhere to go. I mean, I'm, I'm fucked. After I got relieved, right? You know, we talk about PTSD. I don't even know if it's PTSD, to be honest, but I'm just, you know, you start to become aware of like, maybe it was something. But either way, I didn't have trauma from getting shot at. I had trauma from getting relieved of command in combat. It sucked my confidence away. I had no confidence left. But similar to, I talked about the boxing, when the boxing coach was like, Mike, you got to fight this weekend. You're fighting Army. I ended up getting pulled back to my battalion. After they sent me away for a little bit, new command takes over. They're like, who's this Lieutenant Stedman? You know? And I'm out from the wild where they send officers like me that get relieved. And he pulls me back in and he interviews my command. He interviews those closest to me on the mission. They're like, what do y'all think about Lieutenant Stedman? So basically everybody vouched for me. So I get pulled back in his office. This was the executive officer. And he goes, uh, you think you still got what it takes to lead Marines? And in my head, absolutely not. I'm shot. I'm shot. I got no confidence. Good riddance. I'm good. Let me ride out my time. Fucking Naval Academy graduate. I'm a Marine Infantry officer. So even though I'm thinking it in my head, I can't come out and say those words. So literally in my head, I want to say to him in his eyes, absolutely not. I'm good. But I look at him in the eye and I lied. And I said, absolutely he's like, I can't promise anything. Kicks me out of his office. Battalion commander calls me in a few weeks later and says, Lieutenant Stedman, get your shit. You're getting a line platoon. And I end up going back in the infantry. Uh, running a platoon, managing platoon. I was running a platoon again. Yeah. So the first time, the last time I was standing in front of a platoon. How many Marines? About 50. Yeah. Was in Afghanistan. That was the last time I was in front of troops. And so when I was seeing this new group of Marines, I was replaying everything in my head from before. And so I was 
terrified inside. I was just terrified of making a mistake and messing up again and doing all this stuff. But I had, had a, such an amazing company commander that pulled me into his office and he was like, Tim Stedman, he's like, all right, I know about Afghanistan. You got, you start square with me. That's what he did. I performed, I ended up getting a promoted to uh, another uh, platoon, which is called cap platoon. So this is where they send the senior officers end up picking up captain and uh, left the, left the Marine Corps eventually. But that was a big as a uh, captain, as a captain, yeah. Who at one point felt like a failure because you'd been fired, yeah. And so, if I want to learn from your resiliency, you know, what would you teach me about going from being fired, humiliated, everybody knows what happened, right, to all of a sudden? Being back in the, that situation, succeeding, getting promoted, ultimately making captain, and retiring with your head held as high as you can hold it, serving your country. What, what would you teach me about that? First thing I say, you need to read two books. One is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I've read it, I don't know, probably 15 times, but I keep reading yeah. it. I read it almost yearly. And the other well, why one, that book? Let's just talk about that. So I didn't know this at the time. I found this out later, but I was living the Stockdale paradox, you know, and Franco kind of talked about it first. Then Jim Collins later kind of classified this, but this idea of you got to have faith that things will work out in the end, no matter how bad things are, but you also have to accept your current reality that this is what this is and not be, and the reason Man Search for Meaning is because, you know, Victor Frankl was a POW in World War II, dealing all kind of horrors. And the people that didn't make it out of Auschwitz, where he was at, they didn't accept their current reality. It's this idea that like, oh, we're going to leave and our family's going to be there and we're just going to go back to normal or we'll be out by Christmas or all this kind of stuff. People physically died from having their hearts broken. You know, this idea that, you know, oh, we'll only be here for a year or we'll only be here six months or whatever. And then you fast forward and it's just an a, a inability to accept their current reality. And then when James Stockdale, a Naval Academy grad, POW shot down through Vietnam, was in the Hanoi Hilton for seven years, you know, and this idea that like, this is it. I know I'm going to see my family one day, but right now I'm a prisoner of war. And that's what it is. So having faith that things will work out in the end, but the wherewithal to accept your current reality. And so for me, that's what I had to do. You know, I was a uh, relieved in combat, but I had to have faith that that wasn't going to define me. That I still had a whole life to live. And so I just, did I have to earn trust and confidence of the command back? Absolutely. You know, did I have to earn the trust and confidence of the Marines? Absolutely. Did I have to trust myself again? Absolutely. But it all worked out in the end. But at the time, right, like I, I didn't know these things. I didn't know how to articulate these things. I give a lot of credit to podcasting, if I'm being honest, for helping me articulate my thoughts, feelings, and emotions in a way that I didn't know how to do when I was younger. And so now when I look back, I realize like that's what I was doing in my own way was that was my hell. You know, 
And the other thing we don't talk about, you know, and this is why I do talk about race is there's so much pressure put on black people to perform, you know, and we all fail. Everyone fails. It's just the way of life. It's like pooping. It's like everyone poop. poops. Everyone poops, right? <laughs> right? It's just a natural way of life. But there is this feeling of like, I'm giving you this opportunity. You let me down. And you're not just letting yourself down. You're carrying the weight of every other black officer or every other Naval Academy grad and all of this, right? So now they're going to be judging. I don't know. No. And it's known, right? People tell you. You know, these black startup founders are like, you better not fuck this up. Because you're going to make all of us look bad. You make all of us look bad. Yeah. We're giving a chance on you. And this is what you talk about where, you know, we're so polarizing, right? But some of the ones that are the most champion, right? Let you fail them. You make, you made me look bad. You embarrassed me. You know, are you still going to stand in my corner? If we fail, are you still going to be there? And so that's the pressure that we face as minorities of that, like, a lot of times we're expected to hit a home run our first time up at plate, regardless, regardless of the circumstances. You know, as an entrepreneur, right, venture capital, you know, be honest, right? I'll be self-aware on this. I haven't taken a swing at venture capital. You know why? Because I don't know if I can pull it off. You know, that 50X, that 100X return, you know, that's big boy level, Right. But then as I'm talking and I'm saying these things, fucking Naval Academy graduate. I'm Marine Infantry Officer. You know, Hoover Veteran Fellow. Right? If I can't pull these things off. Fucking Navy Boxing Champion. Right. <laughs> Navy Boxing Champion. But, you know, for all of us, right? Like, but again, there's still Knocking that, out Green Berets and shit. There's still that pressure, you know? The stories, like you said, the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah, because people look at you and say, well, you'll make us look bad. And if you can't do it with all that, maybe maybe none of us can. Yeah. Iron Mike Stedman, you're incredible. You're legendary, man. And I'm so grateful to have gotten to know you and get to work with you. I appreciate it. I, uh, I think a good thing to kind of wrap up for me was uh, I've came to Stanford twice. 2017 for Stanford Ignite, four-week boot camp, accelerator program for veterans. I was so nervous, Chris, right? I felt like, you know, you're, is this for me, you know, whatever, da-da-da, right? And even when I spoke and talked about Iron Mountain, I got this old video where I'm, like, stumbling over my words. You can see I'm nervous. Fast forward to 2021, I feel like Muhammad Ali, job been broke, been knocked down, you know? I'm a professional, bad, <laughs> you know? I'm out here, you know, at, at the Hoover Institute, and I have to pitch Ironbound. I felt so confident. I felt like I was in my element, you know. It didn't feel like this magical place that, like, I didn't belong anymore, right? And credit to the team at the uh, Hoover Institute and the Veteran Fellowship for making me feel welcome because I felt in my element. I felt like I was around my tribe. I felt like this was my—I was an expert at this, you know? Um, and so— it makes me emotional to think about that, right? Like, I don't recognize myself anymore in the mirror because, and you ask me where that confidence comes from, because I've been beat up, been relieved in combat, been knocked down, moved to one of the most challenging cities in the country to start a boxing program. People thought I was crazy about it. It was a crazy move to do for a Naval Academy guy. 
And yet here I am still standing on the other side of a pandemic. Kids are good, well-fed, uniforms, you know, started another business with a laptop and a microphone. So I feel like, again, like, Man, like, I don't know. I feel like I'm not, I, and, it's, and it's not this hype kind of confidence, you know, not this look at me. It's like, I've been beat up, man. <laughs> I've been, you know, I'm, I'm beat up, but I'm still here. I'm still here. People who earn it are different. There's a, low, there's a, there's a lower center of gravity, right? That quiet confidence, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and people know it now when, when you walk in the room, right? You don't have to tell them. They know it. When you get up to present, they know before you open your mouth yeah. now, right? It's a lower center of gravity. It's, 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 uh, I don't know if they use this expression in boxing, but in martial arts, we would call it being on your base. You know, your, your base is so strong. I used to have this, um, this martial arts sensei that I trained with for a very long time. It was the first real sensei I ever worked with, an incredible guy, also a veteran. Uh, Army Ranger, but a little guy, buck 40. And uh, I I couldn't take him down. You know, I'm 200 pounds. I I could not take him down. I just couldn't take the guy down because that horse stance, that on your base. Yeah. Yeah. Low center of gravity. Was it say like a cockroach just refused to die? Yeah. In his case, refused to move. Oh, the other thing is like, try and pick him up. You can't fucking pick him up. (laughs) It's 140 pounds. You can't pick him up. You know, people always tell us this though. Like there's all the poems out there. If Richard Kipling, Richard Kipling. Yeah. If you keep your head all about you, when others are losing, getting blaming it on you. If you can trust your man when all men doubt you and make account for their doubting too. You know, all these prolific poems, you got if, you've got Invictus, you've got all these different, it's been documented, you know, this stuff that people tells us, you know, but people always say, you know, we drastically underestimate how far we can get in a year or overestimate how much we can get done in a year and us underestimate how far we can get in five to 10 years. And that's what I feel like now I'm looking around. I'm out here with you. You know, I just spent the week at Stanford at the Hoover Institute. I'm just like, I would have never imagined, you know, and it's humbling. And it's a, I'm just blessed, man. I don't got, I got no problems with nobody. You know, I'm just trying to do the best I can with what I have, lift as many people up as long the way. And maybe, maybe one more thing before we go. Tell me about, um, tell me about your relationship with your mom now. It's always challenging. You know, she's, uh, so she was paralyzed on the left side of her body. Remind me what her name is again. Willene Stedman. Willene. Willene Stedman. Yeah. Yeah. She's a special education, uh, administrator. So she taught with, uh, dealt with the worst of most challenging kids. Yeah. You know, um, they actually tried to put me in special ed. For what reason? Wasn't a good learner. Are you dyslexic or have any of the, what I lovingly refer to as dysphoclia? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. yeah. So when I was going to the Naval Academy, my mom worked at my high school. She was a head of uh, special education at my high school. And uh, once we decided to go the route of, oh, he needs to go to Annapolis. And everybody was like, well, uh, he doesn't have the grades and all this other stuff. Now, this is sophomore year of high school. Well, one of the things is AP classes are weighted higher advanced placement so you get a this is like on a point scale i don't remember the exact number so my mom was like he needs to be in ap classes and they didn't want to put me in ap classes so she used her 
relationships and connections and they got me in AP classes. So even though I was making C's and some <laughs> C's and B's, they were weighted heavily. And that's what the Naval Academy was kind of looking for. So, and when you think there are a lot of black people in these AP classes, no. So she was relentless to support me along the way. But today, you know, she she's bedridden. She's in a nursing home in Texas. It was good to see her. Um, you know, after I got vaccinated and everything, I was able to go out and see her. And the nursing home was pretty rough, right? Those people have been in there fighting a good fight. Scary, scary time in nursing homes, right? Yeah, but uh, you know, I'm I'm a testament to her at the end of the day. And uh, I know she's very proud and she can speak and she could talk, you know, it's just, it's different. Yeah. It's different. Yeah. Um, my mom never drank, at least in front of me. Um, she never swore. She never did any of those things, you know, but when people have strokes, right, there's something that happens. Yeah. Um, but she says drink now, but you know, she's just very, she just has no filter. You talk about uh, <laughs> free dialogue, put a podcast microphone in front of her, she'll tell you everything she wants. Um, but she's with us and, uh, you know, she was at my graduation. We had, we had to get her on an airplane and it was a whole situation. Um, but I can't it, imagine how she feels when she thinks about you now or when she, when she saw you in uniform back yeah. then and she must be insanely proud. Yeah, she is. My whole family's proud, you know, and yeah. uh, credit to, I know I keep bringing up Hoover, you know, and there's a perception of the Hoover Institute outside of uh, Stanford, even on Stanford, right? People had this negative perception of it. And, you know, I was told when I came out here to be careful by a lot of people, um, but they were just so warm and they were so welcoming and they, I felt like they accepted it as me, had my little Iron Mike name tags and everything. And, uh, you know, when I told my family, I was like, Hoover, I think Hoover made a mistake. <laughs> you know, I texted them. They're like, they mean to make no mistake. You know, it's just like, never forget who you are. Never forget where you come from. Um, and they're really proud of me. So I'm a testament to all of them. Anything else, Iron Mike? No, I appreciate it. Uh, shout out to Chris, man. Chris, has been a great mentor. Uh, for those of you wondering how we met, I tweeted Chris. Is that how it started? I, I was trying yeah. to think about that the other day. I sent you a tweet. I said, uh, Chris, my name is Mike Stepman. I read your book, Play Bigger. Really loved it. I run a nonprofit in Newark, New Jersey, and uh, we're doing an entrepreneurship program, and I would love to pick your brain about it. And you sent me a tweet back, and you said, call me. And then that's what we've been doing ever since, just chopping it up. So I appreciate you. And I was nervous about the Courage Academy. I'm still nervous about the Courage Academy. I'm actually nervous that I won't be able to pull it off deep down. Because I have to raise a lot of money. You're talking between 750000 to $1.5 million. And so now the pressure is kind of on. Yeah. And uh, the Hoover Institute's interested to see how far we all can get with these projects. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to go for it. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> now you got to go do it. But uh, there's a lot of people that have confidence in you to get it done. Well, bless you. And thank you your gift in my life. And, uh, I'm stoked to be part of your life. Uh, pleasure to be here. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you, brother. There is my buddy, Iron Mike Stedman. You can find him on the internet at ironboundboxing.org and ironboundmedia.com. 
All right. We would like to thank thank you for hanging out. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. We really do appreciate it. Also want to thank uh, the many folks who sent us feedback on our last episode on Afghanistan with the legendary Valerie Edmondson Bolanos, who's the founder of Warrior Angel Rescue. That's episode 256, Warrior Angels Rescue. And if you haven't had a chance to take a listen, please do. It'll uh, it'll change your day. My friends at OneLifeFullyLived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out, OneLifeFullyLived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.online are the world's first dedicated distant assistant. If you need an assistant who is going to take care of you, who's a real person, who's technology-enabled, but will never get anywhere near you, check out Bottleneck.online today. My friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, and they offer a rapid relaunch program. So if you need a rapid relaunch of your B2B website, check out Otre.net today. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast uh, Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Um, please uh, uh, don't forget to uh, tip your weight staff on the way out. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. He's got a new newsletter out that I highly recommend, particularly if you are uh, changing careers or thinking about changing jobs or careers. Go to substack.com and search for The Pivoteer. Jason has... Uh, Changed his stripes many times and done it successfully, and now he's sharing uh, uh, lessons from the street <laughs> or from the school of hard knocks. That's the pivoteer on Substack.com. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution. And they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. R.J. Bobis uh, does a web development, and so does his brother. EX Bobus, thank you, gentlemen. Cedric Biros does our graphic design and uh, web graphics. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record, uh, uh, I almost said legends and losers. <laughs> if you're a longtime listener, you'll know why that's funny. We record Follow Different on professional uh, podcast platform, squadcast.fm. Check them out, squadcast.fm. Remember to uh, give podcasts, not viruses. And um, don't forget, Category Pirates make great gifts. Check out Amazon.com, Category Pirates. Remember, thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. Listen to the tragically hit. Joan Jett was right. And, um, hey, drinking before noon doesn't make you drunk. It just makes you a pirate. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And, hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Scott Amalonic editor of uh, Stink Magazine. Sorry, Scott. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please uh, stay healthy, stay safe, uh, and of course, stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>